0: Last week, uh, we did a very interesting podcast on mental health. Um, an athlete, an athlete uh, really grappling with the mental side of the game. So we thought we'd go and get serious about this and uh, bring on board someone that we're looking to partner with. Paul Penner, uh, senior psychologist, senior uh, sports psychologist. Paul, welcome. Morning. How are you? Yeah, very well, thank you. Um, I've I have alluded to my psychology degree a couple of times on this podcast. I'm, I make no illusion that I have any clue what I'm talking about. So it's good to have an expert in who we can um, throw some questions at and get a better sense of how the mental side of the game can be impacted and strategies for you know particularly young athletes who may never want to admit any sort of weakness, Um, some strategies that they may be able to incorporate um, into their game to sort of aid them. So it's probably best to get the ball rolling by allowing you to sort of talk about how you ended up in this space and what it is that um, sports psychology entails.
1: Well, thanks for having me on and um, thanks for the opportunity to share and sort of promote um, not only good mental health but also from a performance point of view to share some knowledge about um, what it takes to be successful, um, both on an individual level but also on a a global scale with a sport like baseball. Um, I suppose like a a lot of people, when I um, I left school, I I had a love of sport and um, I thought the only way to combine the two was to become a PE teacher. Um, So I I left um, home and, and started pursuing that after my year 12 and then um short time in i realized that um that probably wasn't going to be my forte um and then sort of found my way um i was doing a placement for our uni at um uh, victorian institute of sport or one, or the university physiology lab um helping them test athletes for the institute of sport and remember watching these two athletes who who physically looked the same Um, and they were doing a rowing erg and the first guy did pretty good results and then the second guy, um, he broke the bolts holding the ergo to the ground and I was like, well, that's different. And I suppose I look at that and go, I think I already had a fascination with how the brain worked and um, probably from my and mild athletic experience myself. I started to recognise that that six inches between your ears was going to become a powerful weapon for people and, you know, working out what was so different about some athletes how they handled the pressure and situations. And then, no, it it just was a journey from there, from, um, you know, PE to to psych, then to postgrad to to masters and then to the institute. So it's been a, I'd say it's steady progression that I didn't really appreciate or understand or um, set about to achieve it's just a journey that I'd place myself on and sort of continues to do that today
0: so the um, obviously studying psychology is there is there a study um, subsection that is more focused on sports psychology or or is it so broad and you've just kind of um, shaved off an area of expertise or is there a specific area of study in that um, in the field of sports psychology?
1: Yeah, so I I did my master's in sports psychology. So my um, post-grad was in sports psychology. So once I'd done my degree um, obviously there's a number of different schools of psychology that you can look at, whether it be clinical, forensic health, rehabilitation or sport. Um, So I floated with the whole re- rehab psych um, and then came to the conclusion that I was certainly more interested in the sport, even though I've still got to um, work with a lot of athletes that are recovering from injuries um, and major um, accidents. So then I did my um, post-grad in sports psychology and then I did a master's in sports psychology. So um, it's a standalone um masters of sports psychology um there used to be a a number of them in australia um victorian university um there was a couple in new south wales and then a couple in queensland and unfortunately now um there's only um an intake every couple of years or every year in queensland so it's quite a a limited um field now um and certainly it's it's an arduous process i did you know end up doing 10 years of uni to then um, graduate with my master's, so combining my, my PE, my degree and then my postgrad and then master's.
0: One of the areas I specialise in is making very broad assumptions, so um, <laughs> I'm going to throw a few at you and uh, blow them up if they're incorrect, but one yep. of my assumptions is that <clears throat> mental health and, and performance in sport is something that has really kind of come into focus in relatively only recent times. Uh, is that is that fair to say or has it always been – like when did it really start to become um, part of the entire package for athletes looking to become elite? When did they really start focusing on the mental side of things?
1: Yeah, that's a, actually a really good question. I think that um, what's happening in sport is mirroring what's happening in um, community. Um, so mental health is a significant and real issue um, – literally for all sectors of the community now. And it's nice to see that that gets um, coverage and support for our athletes as well. Um, when the Institute of Sport first started in Canberra, um, the discipline of, of psychology and sports psychology um, got a, a faculty there and, and department. And that was probably one of the very first in the world that would then specialize in performance and sports psychology for us athletes. And at that point, um, the network of institutes started to to develop as well, and, and most institutes then had a either a consultant sports psychologist or a sports psychology network that they would refer their athletes to. Um, and just like um, seeing any medical or special, medical specialist, um, that individual has their own take on what that person does. And I, I think that when I first graduated and started to practice, I was certainly more focused on the performance enhancement and the mental skills development and helping athletes perform. Where now, um, I certainly, as a nature of my job, but also my own personal philosophy that has evolved over, you know, the last 20 plus years is that a brain that is healthy is able to do amazing things. Um, and that a brain that, is unhealthy is significantly limiting an individual's capacity to perform. So whether that be from a relationship at home or to how somebody is managing HSE or year 12 stress or how somebody's handling um, stress in their life generally, there's this is exactly the same for an athlete. So knowing that um, obviously looking at the Olympic Games and the Paralympic Games that have, you know, has happened recently, you look at it and go, well, that's a lot of stress and pressure. Um, you've got athletes that are de- doing an amazing performance and they're doing it in front of the whole world. And that moment comes down to hundredths of a second and it's about being able to perform in that moment.
0: The um, I'm writing questions down as you talk because the bit that I'm – is there, an, is there an acceptance of mental health from athletes as they go into elite programs? And by, by that, I guess what I mean is, you know, I'm a 17-year-old elite athlete, I'm invincible. Is there an age where athletes start to go, you know what, this is actually more important or is it, is it different for everyone? When, do, when does an athlete really start to realise that it's, it's, a, it's actually a key component of their performance,
1: typically? Well, that, that's actually a really good question and my immediate answer is too late. Mm. Um, so th- there isn't an age appropriate oh this is when we should start using sports psychology often most people only acknowledge it when it's too late this is like going to the dentist and you've already got the toothache And you go well I should have gone you know six months earlier should have gone 12 months earlier so it's it's never too late because our brain has amazing capacity of growth and development however every sport um, has a subculture of how they accept um, sports psychology and mental health. It's exactly the same in community. Um, for for some people, it's completely accepted and normal to go. Oh, I've got a psychologist. You know, I've got a dentist. I've got a doctor. I've got a mechanic. I've got a an electrician. I use and I have got a psychologist that I go and debrief with because life is fundamentally important. Um, and not to manage how I think and feel is like, I'm leaving it to chance. And now we know that, um, from a cultural point of view, that she'll be right. mate. culture of Australia is almost predicated that it's not okay to be, you know, to, to be doing poorly. Um, you know, what do you got to worry about? Um, and, and we know that that actually is completely unhelpful in terms of mental health support. Um. We know that that's one of the reasons why Australian rates as highly as it does on suicide rates. Um, and we know in America, every every second person has got a therapist. And I know there's a different um, registration component. But if everybody started to accept that our brains are important, it need, they need support, we need support, we need to have a conversation, all of a sudden... There's a significant change, not only in mental health well-being of society, but it also changes the stigma of it. It helps get people help that they need. But then from a performance point of view, it's fully embraced. So whether it's a, an 11-year-old gymnast or an 85-year-old... Um, I was My oldest client I've had is an 85-year-old guy who was a bowler and he was frustrated that... Um, he physically wasn't able to do what he was at, that he used to do. Instead of being able to bend down and release the ball, the bowl, um, low and slow, he was dropping it. And quite frankly, he just wanted somebody to chat to while he was walking up and down um, having a bowl. But, you know, everybody is completely unique and different. And that becomes an important part to assess as well. Um, when is the right time to get help or support? or to improve or to develop that mental aspect of your game. So it's actually quite unique.
0: I think that's the other, you know, in baseball, you sign a professional contract between the age of 16 to 21, which is where you, uh, you're most invincible. Um, you you know, you've got the world at your feet. And it's really fascinating. You start to talk about players who've been through the the wash or the grind. And it's that's the period where I just needed to have some strategies around this, but I was too young and and not dumb, but just too young to really understand that component of it. And also uh, well, there may not have been access to it, although that's has has changed in recent times. But um, also didn't want to admit it either, because we're Australian and I'm a professional athlete and I can't even acknowledge that things aren't running perfectly smooth for me. So um, I think that's that is one of the biggest Barriers in baseball, and, and probably in sport, you'd see this across sports, but, in, yeah, in baseball, you're so young when you get signed and you're so oblivious to how important some of this stuff is, and it's how do you make it accessible to young people and, and not just accessible but acceptable so that it's a, it's something you'll turn to and you'll start to mix into part of your program and development. Um, I'm sure you see that across other sports.
1: Oh, well, 100%. Um, and one of the things is, is that um, – we're all so unique that one strategy for one person may be right for them, but won't help anybody else. Mm. Because when we know that um, one strategy, because if it's, a, if, if it's a cognitive strategy, it will only work somewhere between three and 7% of the time. So that means I've got to equip myself with, see, if I'm relying on just strategy, and um, it, I'm going to lose the moment because – and this is where I, what I look at now. It's making the athlete more resilient and resourceful and that they can problem solve and their emotional brain doesn't take over because you can't rely on a strategy in all situations because the environment is dynamic, it changes, it moves. Um, you know, the pitch count is going to change – um, I, like I like the stats of baseball. I love the stats. I like maths. I'm a scientist. Well, that's what I the way I see it. I, I study brain, but more importantly, I study success and failure. And with that, I want to understand what's happening. So the, from a baseball point of view, numbers tell me a whole lot. Yeah. So if I'm working with a pitcher, I want to know – how many times are they are they able to start the first pitch at a at a hitter with um, a strike? Because if they can get um, if they can start with a strike rather than a ball, it puts the pressure straight on to the the hitter straight away. I and it's just like looking at those different things and going, well, how do I do that? Well, you might have ultimately 25 different strategies, but it's about keeping your brain in the battle to be able to action those strategies.
0: Yeah. And I think baseball is this really, you know, like I, I first admit that the, the mental side of the game was a bit of a chink in my arm. I like, I, I, I joked the last one of the last podcasts we did, I had so many superstitions that I started to forget the early superstitions, which then caused me problems as well. And it was, but superstitions like, yeah. well, if I control this, I can control that. And it's bizarre how you can take yourself down these rabbit holes. And, and well, basically-
1: you, you use the, the, the sorry to interrupt you, You use the most powerful word there is the word control. And um, I think it's got to understand what we actually do control and what we actually don't. And when you actually break it down, there's not a lot that we actually can control, not not much at all, but it's the feeling of being in control that people want because we know that I don't control my teammates, I don't control um, the person walking out to um, to step into the box, I don't control my manager, I don't control the other team, I don't control the umpire, I don't control winning and losing, I don't control the weather. But then you can break it down and go, there will be moments when you don't even control your brain. And there's moments where you won't control your physiology. And in those moments where you're starting to lose control, if you then start fighting it, the brain is going to shut down on you. And that's when you will lose complete control. Mm. And that's something that most athletes fear.
0: And the thing that is strange, so baseball is such a game of failure. If you're, you know, you hit 300, 100%. you know, you hit 300, that means you got three hits out of 10, seven out of 10 times, you didn't succeed. And yep. the thing that is has always struck me about people who are really good at baseball is they seem to be almost arrogant, like just this unwavering belief in themselves. And I've seen some people pretend to be like that, but the truly great baseball players – just have this unwavering confidence and control, or sorry, unwavering Okay, confidence.
1: so see, so, okay, so those. So, I would actually challenge that those two things are different. Self belief and confidence are different because one of them is more resilient, and the other one um, fluctuates more based on immediate performance. So, if I do something well there's a conditioned response that I have a positive feeling. And if I do something badly, there's a conditioned response that makes me feel bad. Now, that fluctuating feeling, I would then identify as being changes in confidence. And what happens is, is people get caught on feeling good all of the time. Mm. And that's the problem with the confidence model. Right. Where it's, it's positive if you're getting a positive result the whole time. And then you're conditioning yourself that that's the way you have to feel all the time. But as you said, that if somebody's batting 300, they're failing seven out of 10 times, they can't be feeling good all the time. Therefore, that self-belief, that belief, has to give them a the resilience to be able to deal with that the failure. And it's actually not
0: confidence. That's an interesting. Um, Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so it's resilience is the is the critical piece, not confidence,
1: because not everything that we experience in life or in baseball is going to make us feel good. So we've got to find a capacity to endure that. Now, if we like, sport has looked, sport psychology has looked at that factor for the last. 50 years and lot and and clinical psychologists have been looking at it for longer is what makes us resilient. Now we've looked at mental toughness, we've looked at resiliency, we looked at hardiness, and now we come back to the 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 current one is called grit. You know, and grit is basically that individual characteristic where somebody will just get up off the canvas after being knocked down one more time. And it becomes a mythical um, factor because some people have got it some of the time. Nobody can have it all of the time. And, and we don't know why it, it's almost self-generating, but it's certainly an innate, um, so it's an internal factor that's supported externally. So it becomes incredibly complicated. And it's just like it's, it's one of those myth- mythical things that's just like there's so many different things in that situation that make it that athlete just get themselves up again. But that unshakable belief is incredibly important in baseball.
0: It's funny you mentioned grit. I was in my, when I'm not a uh, leading edge and successful podcast host in my real job, I was working in an office um, and we just got to talking about this SAS documentary um, and it was like they, you know, they'd featured this big muscle-bound guy and this sort of scrawny, annoying guy. And <clears> then <throat> this guy just popped up all the way through. And um, I was like, yeah, he seems to just be even keel. And the other guy in the office was like, oh, I was in that documentary. I was the psychologist. And I was like, All oh, right. And they were all covered up so you couldn't see who they were. And we got to talking. He said, the guy that sort of just popped up and was nondescript, he was the grittiest bloke you've ever seen. Like nothing. He could just flatline everything. And he went on to become a very yeah. successful soldier in an elite, um an elite group. And it was just yeah, that's really what opened my eyes to grit and the concept of grit is just nothing he was able to even keel everything and nothing was too high, nothing was too low, and and, and was able to put everything in perspective. And it was a really fascinating conversation. And that's what made him successful and get through a grueling training program. Um the bit that So just just, just
1: on just on that, sorry to interrupt you That <coughs> when I'm looking at an athlete one of the things that I look for is their ability to deal with and process emotion because that is a learned response. So how somebody handles pressure when they're on the mound is less about their IQ or, sorry, it can be less about their IQ and their development and their coaching pathway and more about how they were programmed to process emotion through their childhood. And some people are able to deal with a whole breadth of emotions and some people can't. Now, if you want to be a successful athlete, dealing with pressure and that perception of failure and fear becomes really, really critical. So from an elite level, um, our military has been testing athletes, um, testing intakes of people wanting to go into the military for years. And what they do is they're able to find you a job relative to your personality profile and your toughness. But in sport, we assume that you're mentally tough because you're competent. So the two models, while they can learn from each other, actually approach things differently. The military will then assess you for your mental toughness and then teach you to be competent in the skill. And sport tests you on your competency and assumes you're going to be mentally tough because you're competent and there's a difference.
0: So we've just we gone way off script here, but um, I'm, <laughs> well, no, I'm interested to follow this one because um, I'm about to do my get off my lawn moment. Like a lot of people say kids nowadays are just not resilient. And I'm keen to hear your thoughts, whether or not you think that's the case. And, why so but also can you can you increase your resilience or is that inherent like you, your level of resilience is your level of resilience i'm really interested to explore that a little bit
1: okay so i'll go with that last bit first 100% you can our brain is either born with or evolved over time 140 years of neural plasticity so that our brain has the capacity to learn new things all the time So that's amazing news. That should be celebrated, that you can teach an old dog new tricks, even if they're 135 years old. You've still got five years left. (laughs) Because if we didn't have that capacity, well, we live in a planet that is – we live in an environment that's constantly changing. We've either acquired the ability to continually learn and adapt because of that volatility or we were born with it or created with it, whatever. But we have 140 years of neuroplasticity. So the answer is yes. Now, an apple doesn't fall far from the tree. If we're talking about kids not being resilient enough, it's possibly because we've created that environment. And we've got to look at it and go on, well, I actually think that they're resilient in different ways. The capacity of their problem-solving stuff is second to none. They can s- solve amazing problems, like they can do things that my generation couldn't do. However, they've also got other shortcomings that they're limited to a Google search, and that's where they get all their information. There, so it's like there's there will be limitations with every generation. It just so happens that I I think that there's times where they're under. More social pressure because of the the um, social media um, lifestyle that they live. However, are they resilient? It's just different. Yeah, I, I think yeah. I'm probably more options than we've ever had.
0: It's funny, uh, you know, we were talking offline. Both our kids play sport, and it's funny. I've um, had conversations at sport where parents are like, "Oh, you know, the kid's just not resilient." And then you look at the parent like, "Yeah, but two weeks ago you wanted to go on holidays, so you just dragged them out of sport and left." So you don't necessarily position commitment and the team as a really important thing but then question why they're not it's not important to them if you know what I mean and I, I just you know, I, I couldn't agree with you more that a lot of it is our fault as their parents and that we probably don't always model the best behavior and then we complain when they don't do what we would anticipate them to do so uh, yeah I think that's um, it makes a lot of sense um, probably should try and get back on track what what are some of the sports that are really leading the way in this in this space?
1: Well, so that, that's actually a really good question because of the way that mental health is positioned. I think that there will always be more to do when we we get the, the current numbers that you know from the Australian Bureau Statistics and um, Australian Medical Association that one in four people will report um, a level of anxiety or depression requiring medical assistance and support. We can assume that there's, there's more people that don't put their hand up and ask for help. So from a mental health point of view, there's always a the capacity to do more. From a performance enhancement point of view, it becomes a seasonal thing um, just because, um, like I'll work with this sport for a significant period of time and then my services will be acquired with another sport. So it, it just depends with, you know, the, the head coach's view. Um, sometimes on a professional level, it even comes down to availability and budgeting. So there's, there's always scope to do more. Um, and some of that onus at, at a younger level will just go straight to the parents to go, well, we've got to think of some of these things. If our kids are wanting to go to college or wanting to be signed, um, how do we develop that support network now so they can handle those
0: situations in the future? Mm. You did, um, when we spoke uh, last week, you did tell me an interesting story. I'd love you to share that again about the the kid who was going to college and had to play for their uniform and the impact that that had on the athlete.
1: Yeah, certainly. So um, in our, in our practice, um, we work with a number of different sports and, and kids who have gone to the States to um, on, a, on a sporting scholarship and um, sometimes I get calls from the parents going, my son's over there, he's really, really struggling. Can you help him? And I'm like, yep. And I was talking to this lad um, and he was just like, it is so different to what I expected. And I was like, well, what, what do you mean? What did you expect? He said, um, I expected to come over here and have that, you know, Hollywood, you know, (laughs) college experience where um, it was rah-rah and everything was fantastic and, you know, we played well and the coach was amazing. He said, oh, the coach was tough, but um, I got here and he made us earn our kit. I'm like, well, what do you mean? He said, well, I had to train in my old state kit for seven weeks before my coach gave me my right sock. And I had to wash that sock every single night, and I had to dry it, and I had to pull on the right sock and wear the rest of my old, you know, crummy kit that I brought from Australia. And then two weeks after that, he gave me my other sock. Um, and then two weeks after that, I got a pair of shorts and a singlet and whatever else. And it was just like, it was like that's so different to what I expected it going to be like. Um, and it was just like college. Coaches are revered like they're demigods. You know, they were the greatest product of that high school or that college, and now they've been in that coaching role for 20 years and they're still having the same methods that they potentially had when they were um, there as an athlete. And I've had pitchers who've come back and said, Oh, coach made us run 25Ks a day. Yep. And it's like, But I'm a pitcher. I was like, Yep. You came here fat and you're overweight, and you were pitching crap. So I'm going to make you run. Mm. So it's it's just look with the volume of athletes that they've got in their systems, the the US sporting system is reliant on their education. They rely on their high schools and they rely on our colleges, where Australian sport is reliant on community sport and community particip- participation, and. Um, they're just going to have sheer numbers going through their schools that are going to produce. But even still, you look at the number of internationals that are playing major leagues now. They're, they're not. They don't have the, the representation at the major leagues that they should have, based on their systems. And I just always go, well, their systems could improve. Mm.
0: Before we sort of jump into effectively working with a sports psychologist as an athlete, what are some of the really common misconceptions that are held by athletes and parents regarding working with a psychologist? What, what do you run into that you sort of have to, you know, clear out before you can really get going?
1: Well, the, the very first, uh, and this is my bias, so not all psychologists are going to have the approach that I have, is that strategies have a really... Um, short wingspan like they have a there's a very short term strategy um that people think they're going to be fixed in one or two sessions um from my point of view i look at my client list now and my clients are typically with me long term um we form a relationship um through their athletic career and then they become ceos and business people and um Husbands and fathers, and they still come back to have a chat. So it becomes one of those things that it's it's a long term investment. Um, you might come for a specific reason, but it's not going to the likelihood is not going to be done in three or four sessions because our brain is far more complex than that, and it wants to grow. And once you've opened up that door, it becomes a real strength because you know it's when we talk about mental toughness, it's actually about being vulnerable and learning to be vulnerable and learning to be okay being vulnerable, which is opposite that we were, you know, often taught is, you know, suck it up and be tough. It's actually rarely the case. it We can go to that place a couple of times. Um, I was just talking to an athlete just before and they were saying, oh, some, I've had two really good performances when I just was really tough and angry and strong. But then the rest of the time, I've, my brain has got to be at that nothing to lose place without the fear. It's like, yep, it makes complete sense. Most athletes perform well, perform their best when they've got nothing to lose. Like one of my favorite questions is, tell me about your best performance. And you go into it in a lot more detail and I will go, you know, oh, I didn't expect this of myself and I wasn't trying too hard and all the stars aligned. Because there was that nothing to lose moment and the brain was calm and connected. So as soon as the pressure's on and you're putting more pressure on yourself and there's that emotional pressure, the brain is likely to disconnect.
0: The, um, I'm, I'm guessing as well there's that sort of notion that, well, I'll go and see a psychologist when things aren't going great. And you know, in, in baseball, you often call someone a front runner, where you know they're they're up and about, they're the cheerleader when they're playing well, and then you never hear from them when things aren't going so great. Do you do you run into that where it's like oh, I need to see a psychologist? I'm not performing that well at the moment, and then they never want to speak to you when things are going well. How do you? What's the balance there, or how should that work?
1: Well, that <laughs> it's actually a really interesting one. Somebody will ring up and say, "Oh, I want an appointment um, to see. Can you get me in this afternoon?" I'm like. Mate, I'm booked out for like three weeks Um, and I've got a wait list for somebody to come on. You're probably not going to be seen for a while. And they're they're like, they're disappointed because it's just like, well, I expected you to fix my problems straight away. Mm -hmm. And I think that we're a part of that culture of going, um, I, I want to be fixed straight away. This is terminal and it needs to be fixed. I'm like, yeah, I get it completely get it from a performance point of view from a mental health point of view i wouldn't want anybody sitting in that place for an extended period of time but from a performance point of view um when we experience pain is when we can capitalize on that 100 percent. like if people don't experience pain they're not going to change but it's also about understanding it and going okay so there's a technical part of my game, there's a physical part of my game, there's a the tactical part of my game, but I've also got to be responsible for the mental part of my game. And it's just a part of that holistic development in terms of performance. Um, you know, I've got a client that I work with and have been working with for the last three and a half years. He came in to me the first time and said, I probably don't need you right now, but I know I'm going to need you in time, and I would sooner have the relationship with you. So when I need you, I can call you comfortably. I'm like, sweet. Sure enough, the last 80 months he's needed me, mm. but he'd already established the relationship, mm-hmm. and it's just like having, you know, it's not, it's not very often that you you can foresee that type of stuff. But the fact that he just knew that across his professional career he was going to need it, it's like, okay, more kudos to you. And I think that I think it's difficult when you go, well, okay, it costs money and you don't need it at the moment. So it becomes really easy to go, well, um, new pair of boots is this, a new bat is that, a new glove is this, um, physio- Massage, strength and conditioning, dietitian, all of those other things. And I go, yeah, I'm biased. You can invest all of that, that money, but if the six inches between your ears isn't working properly, then you've just wasted a whole heap of money.
0: Well, that was what uh, you know, Brad Harmon, who was the, the podcast, talking about his mental health challenges. He said it's all about allocation of resources. And it, you're right, you can go and have a great bat, but if you're mentally not in the right place to swing it, um, you know, w- Put your money, invest your money back into yourself. Um, speaking of money, I know that you work on billable hours, so I don't want to click into another hour here. We'll keep moving. Um, what's the uh, what's the most effective way to work with a sports psychologist? Like you know, you, a lot of people have the notion you go going see a psychologist, so you're lying down on a couch, and and obviously COVID has thrown some curveballs. But how would you how do you, how would a young player engage with a sports psychologist? What does it look like, and you know, how often typically would you be you know, having conversations and what does the overall process look like from start to finish? to yeah. finish mate, that's, from a, that's, a,
1: that's a really good question. Um, you know, in current COVID situation, all of our, our work is done online. Um, so somebody will get an information stuff sent to them. They will get a Zoom link before their appointment. We jump on the line and say, g'day, mate, how you going? Um, and it's a pretty relaxed conversation. For me, it's not um, – there's two parts to the therap- – or there's a number of parts to the therapeutic process. Um, one, of the, the greatest, <coughs> excuse me, one of the greatest – excuse me – one of the greatest things that I can offer somebody is, A, the confidential space where they can work through what they think and what they feel and in doing so, learn that they can process that information. Now, if it wasn't confidential, most people would never, ever share. The, the fact that it is confidential means that people can actually open up on absolutely anything and everything, and they can feel a sense of relief in doing so. And with that, we can go through the journey of where you're going, what you're doing, what are the problems you've had, and what do you want to help with? It's People get concerned, oh, Nothing more alienating than going to a barbecue and somebody asking you, what do you do as a job? And they go, on oh, I'm a psychologist. They go, oh, you're reading my thoughts. Yes. Well, you know, you can breathe a sigh of relief. I um, can't read anybody's thoughts, but I rely on asking questions so that you can help me understand the way you're working. Now, whether it's what you want to achieve or whether it's um, I've got a problem with this, it gives you a massive opportunity to explore that and either you know equip yourself with a better understanding to be able to move forward. And that's simply it. Now, whether you're an Olympic gold medalist or you've signed with the majors of the minors or whether you're just a weekend warrior wanting to go out there and feel more fulfilled by what you're doing, I think sports psychology is worth a conversation. And from a mental health point of view, one hundred percent. The
0: what about this is the bit I was just thinking while you were chatting? There is the you know a lot of young baseball players, particularly in Australia, they just they dominate. They are really really good. There's limited challenges for them, so they can, in some instances, sort of scoot through without ever really tasting failure. So, yep. well, why would I need to see a sports psychologist? I'm doing really good. And I think that's the interesting point. And you probably see it, you know, when you go into places like institutes of sport where it's incorporated into the the training program, but you know, like it's how do you, how do you get an area like this onto a kid's radar? Who's never tasted any kind of failure or speed bumps or those types of things? Because particularly if you sign a professional deal, it's going to happen. And, um, you know, it, no one playing baseball has ever dodged failure. Um, yeah, what's the best way to get it on someone's radar before they even think that they really need it? How, how do how do sports typically do that?
1: Well, once again, I think it's a really good conversation to have and I think it's a conversation typically between coaches. So it has to be led by either a coach or a parent. And with that, it's, it's just about equipping them to know what skeletons in the closet before you actually get there. Now, some people won't like, Sitting down and having that conversation, they feel uncomfortable. And you know what? I've been able to go, if you're not ready for this conversation. Let's come back in, you know, six months' time or 12 months' time when you're a little bit more ready for it. And that may be age appropriate. Um, but it's for me, w- with the way that I work, I'd be getting people to, whether it be baseball or, or golf, it's about extending your skill set. Including how I can train better. What do I need to do to train more consistently? What am I doing when I'm performing under pressure? How do I improve my performance? How do I develop the mental skills that promote those those outcomes? Whether it be visualization, self-talk, being able to sleep properly, being able to manage conflict. Um, There's lots of different areas that are covered by a sports psychologist. There was the so sorry. So it's like sleep is a is now becoming a massive generational issue because everybody's got this phone in their hand all the time and they go to sleep and their brain goes, no, let's keep on playing. Mm. And But we know that our mood is regulated by our sleep and what we eat. The dopamine and serotonin that we need to regulate our brain activity or our brain mood is produced in our stomach while we sleep at night. So if you don't sleep properly, your mood can be severely interrupted. Equally, if we don't eat properly and sleep properly, you could be building an issue. And we know that most teenagers, as their brains are going, or their brains are going through the most second most significant development of their lifespan, is going to struggle with that because they think they're invincible.
0: I think that was the bit that I took away from Brad's um, yeah, podcast. He was, you know, he was... Competing, he'd just been in the major leagues, had his first taste and then just hit this road bump and he couldn't sleep because he was just, you know, thoughts swimming in his head and and had no strategy to stop that. And I think then as he said... Well, he
1: needed somebody in. So so I listened to that interview and I thought it was a really good one and he was incredibly open, which made it actually really helpful. In that instance, because he's so caught, he's probably going to be it's going to be almost impossible for him in that instance to then have the awareness to go, I need help. One of the byproducts of being in that situation when the anxiety is going up, the isolation and the loneliness starts to increase. So the ability to actually ask for help almost becomes impossible. He needed somebody to have checked in with him beforehand going, well, here's some warning signs that you're struggling. If you're struggling, let us know. Mm -hmm me, because it's one of the the problems with mental health related issues or even performance issues the soon as you're in your head you've got a problem with your performance because you can't play like you've got nothing to lose when your head is full and clouded Mm.
0: it's always interesting when you you know someone says they're struggling like why didn't you call me and it it's that well I've just become more isolated so I didn't even think to call that was too hard or didn't even didn't land on my register to do it and that's the that's that downward spiral Um conscious of your time and um, obviously we could just go on and on and on but what what's key advice you'd give to young athletes and parents in this space uh,
1: the very first one is I actually don't see it as being a waste of time it may not mean that your son um, is going to go and play majors or your daughter will go and play softball league. But it's a matter of going, it can equip them with the skills to help them understand themselves a little bit better and make better decisions in the future. And if they're then going to go on to be a professional athlete, you would want somebody in their corner that you know that they can trust that there is literally a phone call away. So not only is it an investment in the present, but it's also an investment in the future. Um, and it's not a tokenistic thing. I think that um, that the, the journey that you can have with somebody, having that open and honest conversation or they're giving you the capacity to then work through the stuff that's in your head is huge. Like everybody has a benefit of just talking through life. Like we're not meant to do life, by ourselves in our own head. We can't solve all our own problems. Sometimes it's incredibly refreshing to go, I need to sit down and just download for a little bit. It's not going to make a lot of sense to you. I just need to get this off my chest. The reason why those sayings existed is because of the relief people get by talking. Mm. I've got to get something off my chest. Just let me talk for a second. I've got to get it out of my head. I don't know what it is, but I feel better after talking. Mm. Yep. That's just the way our brain is designed. We are a community animal.
0: And what age, like what age would you start to see young athletes sort of pop up on your radar? Like, what's a good, is there a good age for people to start engaging in this type of
1: relationship? And I think, I think that parents are going to know their kids Mm. probably the best. Now, if your son or daughter is experiencing um, a mild anxiety, um, at a young age, 10 to 12, it's probably a chance to go, okay, going to see the psych, going to introduce him, the sports psych, and you're going to see him maybe once or twice a year. And as you become an adolescent, that relationship's there. And you'll work out, like, whether you trust them or not, and if you feel comfortable or not, you then try another one. Because it's not, you know, try one and then give up, yeah? Because you've got to find somebody who you feel comfortable talking with. So but that adolescence becomes a critical phase because they've got to transition to somewhere. So whether it be an AFL, where there's the draft or whether it's college or it's being signed straight away. It's knowing, you know, almost eighteen months, two years before that step up, we've got to maximize these opportunities.
0: Yeah, as I said, I think there's there's a multitude of conversations we could have around this topic and um yeah, we've sort of given the broad overview today. So, Paul, thanks very much for your time. I really appreciate it. We will make, um, you know, a part of our plan when we launch our platform is to sort of have these partners that we can link people with. So, um, you know, in a perfect world, we'll have your details there and, and people will be able to reach out to you directly. And the other area that we're sort of keen to do is, kind of make your make your expertise available through, you know, group Zoom calls where you can talk broadly on topics as well. So um, we're really keen to keep working with you. And, and once again, thank you very much for your time today.
1: thank thanks for having me on board. And I'm really looking forward to um, the support that we can offer um, people going forward.